Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, and I'm Rob Hughes, and you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So, where are we going this time, Bob? C is for Carlos, Carlos Alomar. Born in 1951, Puerto Rico, in a place called Ponce. I think you find it's called Ponce, Mark. Twerk. I heard that. Son of a Pentecostal minister, raised in New York, though, and by the age of 10, he picked up his first guitar, started playing professionally aged 16. I mean, uh, just one of the great guitarists and a long-time cohort of Davy Bowie. Mm. Obviously, when you get somebody like Carlos Alomar, you don't let them go, do you? Not at all. And there's a few guitarists that we'll look at through Bowie's career who were kind of uh, pivotal, obviously starting with Mick Ronson and another one being Earl Slick. And I would add to the Trinity, I would add Carlos Alomar. He had lots of great players with him, didn't he, over the years, but you would have to say that. Uh, But he performed at the Amateur Hour of the legendary Apollo Theatre in Harlem and he eventually joined the house backing band, which means that you are just working with loads and loads of big names. It's yeah. a bit like Jimi Hendrix. So Jimi Hendrix, he learned his trade playing with the Isley Brothers and all manner of uh, the legends, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, it was known as the Chitlin Circuit, wasn't it, in the States, and he'd paid his dues for a long, long time. Yeah, I mean, so you just end up being the cream of the crop. So Carlos Alomar recorded, well, he played behind some demanding band leaders, you might say, including Chuck Berry, and from 1968 to 69, for eight months, he toured as part of James Brown's backing band. Now, James Brown was notoriously well on it, wasn't he? Well, there's all that uh, all that culture of finding musicians yeah. when they get a, a bum note, which is you've got to say it's got to be the best way to learn, really, hasn't it? Because if your pay packet is dwindling by the night, by the bum note, you're not going to hit them, are you? No, you're not. And also, you're going to be on time because he would find people just not being like two minutes late. And all yeah, that all that. Yeah, but uh, yeah, 1969 formed a band. Listened, my brother, with the then unknown Luther Vandross, Fonzie Thornton, who later worked with uh, Roxy Music and Chic, and his future wife Robin Clark. And they also toured with the soul band The Main Ingredient. So he meets Bowie 1974 while he's playing on the Lulu session, which included a version of Bowie's "Can You Hear Me," which ended up on Young Americans, of course. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And uh, he just recognised Carlos Alomar as a great talent, didn't he? And asked him to join the Diamond Dogs tour. Oh, so this was, you know, this became a recurring scenario here. Carlos Alomar wasn't offered a fair rate of pay in Bowie's band, and he declined. Now, you know, this does crop up, sadly. I mean, uh, Earl Slick was in the same case, and also uh, Steve Ray Vaughan. Mm. I mean, he famously, we'll get onto Steve Ray Vaughan and go into the actual subject matter more intensely further down the line, but he desperately wanted to play 
played with David Bowie and he'd done all the rehearsals and stuff with David Bowie in Dallas and was ready to go on tour and got offered. I heard of the figure of $75 per show. Wow, really? To play with Bowie. And it was his manager who turned it down. And so you think by having done this already with uh, Carlos Alomar, Bowie might have learnt by this time. But as we know, I mean, he'd been through such financial difficulties Mm. that he, he ended up being pretty frugal. Yeah, okay. So we're going a few months down the line now. Olimar is in uh, Bowie's band on the Diamond Dogs tour, well underway. And of course, Bowie famously decided halfway through, I want to change the direction here. Let's go do something else. He books some studio time at Sigma Studios in Philadelphia and decides he needs Carlos Alomar back in the fold at this point. Well, he'd been listening. Again, you know, uh, we talked about Cracked Actor, but he'd been listening to a lot of soul music, hadn't he? Mm. The Ohio Players, you know, and Aretha Franklin and all that. So he sat in the back of the limousine in Cracked Actor, singing Feel Like a Natural Woman, all that kind of thing. He's becoming steeped in soul music and decides that's the direction he wants to go in. Again, we'll look at this further. Uh, But there's not really the right musicians within the band at that point in time Mm. to realise this for Bowie and he knows it and he thinks well yeah okay I probably do need that fella that I met before he goes back to Alamar he also brings in Luther Vandross and also Dennis Davis who um, Alamar had met working with Roy Ayers I think a few years earlier right and a bass player called uh, Emir Kazan so he has this new band now and a new approach yeah, and so, I mean, he's just, he took him out on the rest of the date. So, again, we can't go into young Americans too much because we'll do that at length further down the line. But he, he just thought, right, okay, that was famously the point whereby he changed tag, didn't he? He was like, he'd done half the tour, he did it as Diamond Dogs, and then the rest of it was all kind of influenced by young Americans and some of the previous material that I'd been doing earlier in the tour as well. Uh, so Carlos Alomar, from that point on, was, uh, again, we, you, we can use the word omnipresent, but he was he was with Davy Bowie for an awful long time. Yeah, so to get a measure of just how important he was to Bowie, so he's on Young Americans, he's on Station to Station, of course he's on Low and Heroes, Stage the live album, Lodger, Scary Monsters, Tonight, Never Let Me Down, Outside Heathen and Reality, and also he's on the Iggy albums, The Idiot and Lust for Life, so he's all over. Yeah, obviously a trusted cohort, you know, and it seems like, I, I've never met him, but he seems like a hugely likeable man, doesn't mm. he? I mean, on the uh, Five Years documentary, he's just so great. Him and Niall Rogers just come across so great, and Dennis Davis, yeah. they're just like really sweet people. But uh, the great story, which he tells on Five Years, actually, he does say, I didn't know who he was, but I did know he was the whitest man I'd ever seen, translucent white. And he had orange hair and he weighed about 98 pounds. At one point, I said, you look like shit. You need some food. You need to get my wife to make some chicken, rice and beans and fatten you up. And you can imagine Bowie. I mean, again, he wasn't eating. He wasn't looking after himself. And they probably just thought, yeah, bye. Mm. No, the next thing he knows, a limousine rolls up to his house and uh, there was Davy Bowie going up his stairs for chicken, rice and beans. I don't blame him. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. C is for cocaine and California. So even going back to the time at Beckenham Arts Lab in the late 60s, Bowie would sometimes lecture the audience about the dangers of doing hard drugs. Right. Okay. Now, he did admit to once dabbling with heroin in 1968, and there is a passage in David Buckley's Strange Fascination, which is a Bowie biography, where he suggests that the sort of countdown piece in Space Oddity is the approximation of a heroin hit, which is Buckley's... Buckley's, you know, idea, I think. It's taken as Bowie's said. Yeah, I mean, do you know, thinking about that passage, because I never knew that Bowie had dabbled in heroin at all. Well, having uh, thought about that section of Space Oddity, you can actually see where David Buckley's coming from, though Mm. it might just be a flight of fancy. 
very possibly. And of course, like many people in the 60s, like most people, especially artistic people, uh, he had taken weed, spliffs. Well, lot. I mean, you know, you're talking about the 60s. I mean, I was artistic, but I was only nine when the 60s ran out. So I'd never had it at that particular mm. point in time. But uh, so it seems that Bowie first started using cocaine regularly during Diamond Dogs, doesn't it? Yes. That seems yes. to be the case. And he was working really, really hard. And, uh, and he was in Amsterdam at the time. So you put two and two together there. But by the summer of 1974, he was addicted. These are the stories that are documented, you know, of course. So his daily routine was affected, supposedly sleep by day, awake and working at night. We saw his weight loss, you know, and obviously uh, cocaine does suppress the appetite and that. Mm. So that's one of the reasons he looked so bad on the cover of David Live. I mean, that is a scary album cover. It is great and, again, iconic, mm. but that suit that he's wearing is almost like the suit, the talking head suit yes. that David Burns wearing. It's too big for him. He's got the big shoulders on it and everything, and this little skeleton within it and the cheekbones and everything which are just part and parcel of the fact that he was so, so underweight. Yeah, I think Bowie said when he had a look, first time he looked at the uh, that screenshot, he said, I look like death warmed up. It was quite shocked to him, I think. Yeah. So, of course, you get the emotional problems that come with um, cocaine addiction, the paranoia, the psychosis. Earl Slick, his guitar player, is on record of saying that it was an upside-down time uh, for Bowie, not a period in his life you look back on with any great fondness later on. And, of course, we can see bits of this in, in Cracked Actor and the rest of it, can't yeah, you? Yeah, loads of it, yeah. Gaunt appearance. Uh, there is a story about him going round to Ava Cherry's place for a meal with her mum and dad and, for dessert, taking out a little vial of Coke. Yeah, I mean, so these stories growing now of, like, David Bowie going round to Ava Cherry's mum and dad's house and also to Carlos Hayes. It's like he's flitting round to all of his mates getting a meal here Just and Just needed feeding up. Yeah, I mean, we've all done that when we've had no money. You go mm. to your parents, don't you, and get them to feed you up. But anyway, it was in Los Angeles where the cocaine use just really went bonkers again. You know, station-to-station sessions in early 75, and it was Carlos Alomar who said, when you're trying to do something, the most disturbing thing that can happen in the studio is to have to go to sleep if you're on a roll cocaine keeps you awake so he says it keeps you up and it keeps the mind bright and he was doing far too much of it on station to station but the coke use is driven by the inspiration and it's also been said you know somebody once said to me that David Bowie kind of used himself as a guinea pig or just to see how much drugs it would take to take him to a different place to create something really really unique and this is a disclaimer but you know if you look at a lot of artists it's true to say that they made a lot of their best records while they were completely off their heads. And I suppose it just comes down to the fact that they're not like everybody else at that point in time. The yeah. reasoning is different, mm. which makes them approach subjects in a different way, which makes them come up with something individual and unique. So I'm not suggesting people go out and do it, but that just seems to be the case. You know, the, you look at a lot of artists, yeah. Lou Reed, Bowie... Iggy, a lot of the uh, the best records they made were kind of when they were out there. They could, obviously, drug use can also lead to real car crash yeah, records as well. Well, there is long sort of standing discussion, isn't there, about the relationship between drugs and creativity. Mm. And it's interesting here in Bowie's case in that it seems to be, it wasn't like psychedelics. People would drop acid in the 60s to have these visions and then you'd transfer that onto record. You know, aided more in the direct creative process, whereas Bowie really was taking them just to keep going. So he was in the right space. He just wanted to not fall asleep. And they also say that there are certain certain drugs which heighten your intelligence, mm. you know. But I was going to allude to the, the psychedelic scene, whereby it was a lot of artists were folk artists, weren't they? And then they would drop a tab of acid because everybody was doing it and it was legal at that point in time. Mm. And then they'd see all these crazy things and then all of a sudden become a psych artist. That's right. You know, directly influenced by it. Yeah. So there is a famous interview, isn't there, by Satellite. Bowie's in LA, I think. Russell Harty's in his uh, London TV studio where he's just kind of a little bit distracted. He's incoherent. He's not 
not really with it at all. Russell Harty wasn't the easiest. No, he, he, he just seemed to be really obtuse on that particular occasion. And he was a fan of Bowie's Russell yeah, Harty. So it's hard to know why he did it. But he was asking him facetious questions and being a bit smart arse and probably being a little bit over familiar with Bowie. Mm. And Bowie wasn't having it. And uh, with all of the other things going on in his mind, he just didn't like it. You could tell he was uncomfortable with the Russell Harty interview, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. So Glenn Hughes, we'll get to a little bit more in a, in a bit of Deep Purple, sort of knocked about with Bowie a bit after he'd moved to California. In his Paul Trinker's book, Starman, he did say that uh, Bowie used drugs to enlarge his capabilities in every dimension. He said it magnified his intelligence, if you will, but it had its way with him. Well, it most certainly did, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, in 1974, moved to New York and then to Los Angeles. In the following year, like, he was uh, hanging out with Ava Cherry an awful lot and actually lived in her flat with a lady called Claudia Jennings, who was a Playboy model. What's one of them? Oh, do some research, Bob, do some research. But then, yeah, so he moved around uh, California and that was his new chosen home, wasn't mm, it? That's right, yeah. So, as I say, he got to know Glenn Hughes for a while. It's an interesting picture that uh, Hughes paints in the book because he would invite Bowie over to his house in Beverly Hills, both heavily into cocaine at that point. Didn't seem to talk much, so Bowie would sit on the sofa and just watch films with the sound down all day long. Right. And Glenn Hughes would just um, be doing some riffs. Now, Bowie also hung out with a clothes designer called Ola Hudson, who was accompanied by a son, who was nine years old at the time, who happened to be Slash. Yeah, from Guns N' Roses. And uh, so uh, I remember reading this ages ago, say, you know, uh, uh, talking about his life. So, yeah, David Bowie used to be my babysitter every now and Mm. then. You think, right, how did that happen? So that's how it happened. Ola Hudson, right, okay. Absolutely. So... L.A. is where a lot of the kind of hearsay about Bowie develops, isn't it? There's all sorts of stories going along and you wonder how much is truth, how much is fiction, how much is myth, the whole thing. So he reignites his interest in the occult, for example. He does, yeah. And apparently he spends his days at home with all the curtains drawn. He said, I didn't want the L.A. sun spoiling the vibe of the eternal now. That's right. Cosmic. He was just on a diet solely of peppers and milk. Yeah, hanging out with white witches, no names, no pack drill. No, there were pentagrams supposedly drawn on the floor. Well, again, wait down to seven and a half stone. His meal times were between 4am and 5pm. This is one of the most notorious ones, actually. Storing his Wii in a fridge to ward off wizards and their ability to control. I mean, that, I don't know if Bowie ever admitted it or refuted that. In the fact that he never actually did refute it, that yeah. I'm aware of, maybe yeah. he did it. Uh, also, he supposedly had his swimming pool exercised. I tell you what, I mean, some of the swimming pools I went in in the 70s needed to be exercised. <laughs> That's a different thing. It's a Mark. different story. <laughs> Starts wearing a crucifix to protect him from evil spirits. That's right. And his interest included uh, Curlian photography, which measures uh, magnetism in the human body. One photo, in fact, from April 75, ended up on the inner sleeve of Earthling later on. Right, OK, I didn't know that. And, uh, he also said he would stay up for seven or eight days on the trot. By the end of the week, my whole life will be transformed into this bizarre nihilistic fantasy world of oncoming doom, mythological characters and imminent totalitarianism. He also made his very controversial statements about Hitler around this time, Mm. which he put down to too much drug consumption during the L.A. period. He said there was something horrible permeating the air in L.A. in those days. Well, there is a famous um, incident, isn't it, of the photograph. It's at Victoria Station, yeah, is it, when he, yeah. came, when he came back. Uh, and this was earlier, and, and that's what he's re- reflecting on. But, you know, the famous or infamous Nazi salute yeah. from the car to the awaiting fans. And Bowie always maintained that he was waving. Mm. And if you catch, you know, somebody in a photograph whilst they're waving, and the hands just... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not being an apologist. No, uh, you no, know, no, if no. I thought he was doing a, a yeah. Nazi um, salute, then that would be pretty horrific, wouldn't it? Mm. Uh, but... I 
I think he was just caught mid-wave and that was it, you know, all this had to go and happen. Definitely. So, of course, you know, he moved on to Switzerland after that and he said later of LA, he said it's the most vile piss pot in the whole world. It's the scariest movie ever written. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. C is for the chameleon of rock. Oh, Bob, you're in trouble now, no way. You're in serious bother. Well, you would be if David Bowie was still alive, because I can tell you now, he was often referred to as a chameleon of rock. We know that. Mm. I have it on very good authority that he absolutely hated that phrase. He thought it was a complete joke. Because uh, if you think about it, people call him the chameleon of rock because, yes, chameleons change all the time. They can change the colour. And, uh, yeah, that's fine. He got that. Uh, but, of course, chameleons change colour so that they merge into the background to become anonymous, which was the complete opposite of what Davy Bowie was doing. So he was changing all the time, but he was doing it to stand out from everybody else. And so he wasn't the chameleon of rock, so don't ever say it again, Bob. I'll never say that again. Good man. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. C is for Changes One Bowie. So, Changes One Bowie released May 1976, the first meaningful Bowie compilation, I think, and it was one of my sort of entrees into Bowie's world. And it was just so diverse. Released to coincide with the White Light Tour, which I know you saw in 76, didn't you? Which we'll get to later on. But it is Bowie's period from 1969 to 1976, and it just showed just how much he'd changed. So you start off with Space Oddity. It's all the hits. But there's very little correlation between, say, Space Oddity and Gene Genie, or even between Diamond Dogs and Young Americans, only less than a year apart. Yep. So you get an idea of where Bowie was at and how quickly he was moving in time. And that was the record that just sort of got me interested. I thought, well, where can I explore here? Because it's just like you can go into little entry points, can't you, in that track list, and he's there. I mean, it was a huge album as well, yeah. wasn't it? It really was. But, uh, I mean, you mentioned it, we've mentioned it before, Bob. The compilations up to that point, you had The World of David Bowie, which was another one to be filed alongside Confusing, which right. we could have done see for Confusing with David Bowie's mm. career. But you had The World of David Bowie, which you would have the original version of it with the curly hair. Mm. And then, of course, they re-released it when Ziggy kicked in. So they had the picture of David Bowie with the feathers on his chest and the Ziggy cut. And that was very confusing because, of course, you look at Davy Bowie like Ziggy and then, you know, I was catching up with all that stuff. You yeah. get it and you're listening to Uncle Arthur. It completely freaked you out. There was also Images as well, wasn't there? That's which right. was another compilation album which had a, a cartoon cover. Yeah, well, I was going to say the best thing about Images is it's artwork. It's yeah. an amazing piece of work. Every song is illustrated yeah. in, in cartoon form, as you say. So Changes 1, you know, marked a, well, an important part in my life anyway, certainly in my discovery of David Bowie. Yeah, huge album. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. C is for Charles Shaw Murray. Charles Shaw Murray is the journalist who interviewed Bowie several times when he was at the enemy in the early 70s. Certainly a fan, and he was also lucky enough to be present at the Hammersmith Odeon gig when uh, Bowie killed off Ziggy in uh, 73. Yeah, the enemy was my chosen reading uh, around about this time. It's the first paper I got into, though, to, truth be told, I used to buy them all eventually when I could afford it. But the enemy was it for me. They seemed to cover Bowie more than anybody else, and it usually be Charles Shaw Murray who was doing it. Mm. Grew up in Reading, Berkshire, and his first experience in journalism came aged 18 in 1970 when he was asked to contribute to the magazine Oz and then he wrote for It, International Times and then he got a job on the New Musical Express in 1972 and he was there until around about 1986. Yeah, that's right. He also co-authored David Bowie and Illustrated Record with Roy Carr which came out in 1981. So the Bowie connection's really strong in the early 70s between Bowie and uh, Charles Shaw Murray. So when Bowie plays the Roundhouse in July 1970 as part of the Implosion Festival, uh, Murray's in the audience, as well as a 16-year-old Stuart Goddard, pre-Adamant. Yeah, m- a massive fan, and uh, obviously Bowie, a huge uh, influence on his career. But yeah, in 1972, December, Charles Shaw Murray wrote an Enemy article that identified the commercial appeal of Davy Bowie, and he called it Bowie is an Industry, which, of course, he was. And soon after that, he wrote, whether it's Bowie mania or Ziggy mania or a combination of of the two is not yet apparent, but something is definitely happening, Mr. Jones, alluding to the Bob Dylan thing. Of and of course, he's right, you know, because it, it was again, you know, is it Davy Bowie? Is it Ziggy Stardust? All became apparent because Ziggy Stardust was a character. Of course. So he's also backstage when Bowie appears on Russell Harty's TV show in 73. And then he was one of the, well, he was the journalist on The Enemy to reveal Bowie's new persona, Aladdin Sane, that year. He was also part of the entourage where Bowie left by train to go to Paris, where he recorded pinups. So Charles Shomery is there at the chateau with him. So, obviously, very trusted. Absolutely. He's part of the inner circle. Yes, to be allowed in there. Davy Bowie obviously had a lot of faith in him. And, you know, he does look back at his own career, Charles Shamori. Fair play to him. He's got some excuses for some of the things that he says. Mm. And, le- and one of the excuses is, hey, hang on a minute, everybody's entitled to their opinion. Yes. Which is completely true. Uh, but the notorious stuff, really. In January 1977, he wrote a really, really scathing review of Lowe for the NME. And so, like, the magazine considered the release important, you know, like, give it a page and a half to review it. It was just one of those things where, the, yeah, Bowie, a massive name, and this is something completely different. Yeah. But this is what Charles Shaw Murray wrote. Transition, transmission gives way to shut down demolition, an album so negative that it doesn't even contain emptiness or the void. It doesn't even sound like anything. Low is a sound of nothing, and even the nothing is elusive. The chameleon lies down in front of the void, assumes its coloration, and curls up in a fetal position to wait for nothing to come and get. If that wasn't insulting enough, he's called him the chameleon of rock. I know. Oh, that's probably what that, did he. That is a shocker. It's so flowery. It is. And over 
overly so and flowery and scathing. It's like smiling and stabbing you at the That's same right. time. And isn't it? some of it just really doesn't make sense. For example, music can sound so synthetic and depersonalised as to imply that the instruments did the playing after the band had gone home. Mm. All this kind of stuff, you know. He says David never makes any minor errors, only fundamental ones. It stinks of artfully counterfeited spiritual defeat and futility and emptiness. Do you know, when you think it couldn't get any worse, he says it's an act of purest hatred and destructiveness. It comes to us in a bad time and it doesn't help at all. This is passive, inward-looking and profoundly selfish and egotistical and encourage blah, 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 oh, blah, just off into the distance. I mean, it, it's a rant, isn't it? It is a rant. And as you say, the enemy printed two reviews. So you've got that really uh, vicious review by Charles Shaw Murray and you've got Ian MacDonald, who was in favour on the other side. So you could take your pick, really, and you could understand the feeling in some ways. But you've got to defend your opinion, haven't you? Yeah, but it also got personal. I mean, the quote that he finished off with Charles mm. Shaw Murray says, you're a wonderful person, but you've got problems. Just throwing Bowie's lyrics back at him. Absolutely. So we fast forward now. So to September 2017, this is 40 years after the event, of course, Charles Shaw Murray wrote about a sort of reappraisal of Lowe on his own website and explained the condition, well, what was going on in his life that would made him review that record in a certain way. He did. He says, hey, so nobody's perfect, not even me, brackets, especially not me, close bracket, as any veteran of my rapidly disappearing profession will confirm. It's often the pieces in which you got it wrong or, to be more euphemistic, found yourself on the wrong side of the later emerging consensus are, uh, which are remembered longer than the ones in which you never nailed it correctly. Mm. It was therefore a pleasure, albeit of the bittersweet variety, to be invited to step back four decades and reassess and contemplate an error of critical judgment perpetrated back in 1977. The case for the defence. Yeah, so he goes on to say, he says three of my worst 70s mistakes were uh, really harsh assessments of Blondie and Clash at very early gigs. The third he says, was my reaction to Lowe. That review became mildly notorious. In fact I was asked to read extracts from it aloud while appearing on the Bowie documentary Five years. Probably the last thing he'd want to do, really. Yep. Be invited onto uh, five years. He says, uh, it is unquestionably one of Bowie's most influential albums in terms of changing the world around it. It's one of his major masterpieces, which I like the least. So he still doesn't have any great love or fondness for this record. Fair enough. Yeah. But there were conditions. There were sort of certain things happening, as we mentioned, with Charles Shaw Murray. At the time, he said, me and my wife uh, were in a sort of severe amphetamine addiction at that time. So we did indeed, alluding to the Bowie lyrics on low, have pale blinds drawn all day. And she was a little girl with grey eyes who would never leave her room. So, so the, all a bit close to home yeah, for him, Yeah, so this perhaps. intensely personal thing is going on in his life. And he just felt at the time that Bowie, in addressing these kind of subjects, was glamorising it somehow. That's how... He saw it. So he's taking the moral high ground now. (laughs) So this is what he says. Lowe is unquestionably one of Bowie's most influential albums in terms of changing the world around it. It also is one of Bowie's major masterpieces, which I like the least, which is where the personal element comes in. So, yeah, the disclaimer's there. He wasn't having a good time, and he took it out on Lowe. The uh, the funny thing is, I've only ever been in the room, as far as I'm aware, uh, alongside Charles Shamori, and that was when I went to the Davy Bowie's exhibition at the V&A. And he was being an interview actually in the gardens if mm. I'm being uh, pedantic with myself and why would you right okay fair enough the A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley C is for cut up technique Okay, yeah, the cut-up technique, or découpé in French, is a process of cutting up text and rearranging it to create new text, isn't it? It is. So William S. Burroughs, and and this is where I thought it came from as well, he's often credited with its invention, but it it goes back to the 1920s, uh, the Dadaists. As many things do. 
So, for example, to make a Dadaist poem... Take a newspaper. Take some scissors. Choose from the newspaper an article of the length that you want to make your poem. Cut out said article. Next, carefully cut out each of the words that makes up the article and put them in a bag. Shake gently. It's like a recipe, isn't it? Add flour and water. No, sorry. Next, take out each cutting, one after the other. Copy conscientiously in the order in which they left the bag. The poem will reassemble you. There you Cosmic. have it. Uh, an infinitely original author of charming sensibility, even though unappreciated by the vulgar herd. I think they're talking about me and you there, Bob, aren't they? Jill J. Wallman was an early practitioner in the 1950s. And we must mention, of course, Brian Geisen, who uh, was using razor blades and newspapers to do the same kind of thing. Yeah, and it was Geisen, wasn't it, who introduced William Burroughs to the technique at the Beat Hotel. Where else could it be? Absolutely, yeah. it. Uh, so they used not only the printed word, but also audio recordings, so they reckoned the reassembled words would actually reveal their true meanings. Not too sure about that, are you? No, I'm not really, you know. Um, and we have actually uh, prepared a cut-up here. Now, you see, one of the most derided and uh, castigated of all David Bowie's efforts was the Laughing Gnome. Yes. Now, we will talk about the Laughing Gnome with Mike Vernon in the Mike Vernon section. That's right. right. Okay, so, uh, but, you know, I just thought, people don't like the Laughing Gnome, really, and it's a figure of fun. But if Bowie had have applied the cut-up technique to it, mm. it could have been very different. I did it on David's behalf. I hope he doesn't mind. I'm sure he won't. Right. But this is how the Laughing Gnome came out with the cut-up technique. I was walking on the edge of my bed in scarlet and roasted toadstools and there was a clicking noise. I ought to report you to a glass of dandelion wine at the London School of Economics, up me chimney. Now they're saying at school, writing comedy prose, down his tiny tummy, whose name is Fred. Ha ha ha, he he he, I'm an old man. You can't catch me. Oh, it's so atmospheric. It's quite deep. Oh, it is. In that, in that particular yeah. instance, but it wasn't before. So I can see how the technique does work. So famously, apart from the laughing gnome we've just heard, uh, David Bowie did deploy the cut-up technique as seen on Alan Yentob's documentary Cracked Actor, didn't he? You see him doing that. Mainly used on Diamond Dogs, wasn't he? Particularly Sweet Thing and Candidate and Sweet Thing Reprise, you know, and We Are the Dead, apparently. That's right. So Bowie and Burroughs did actually meet in late 1973. The meeting, well, published in Rolling Stone later on, but Burroughs starts by telling Bowie that the subjects of his book Wild Boys use Bowie knives with an 18-inch blade and asks... Did you know that? And so Bowie, it's no secret, was a massive fan of William S. Burroughs anyway. And Wild Boys, I mean, the Diamond Dogs thing about setting the future, mm. where there were Wild Boys just all running around in packs and all that kind of stuff. So there's no doubt that uh, Bowie had been reading an awful lot of William S. Burroughs stuff. So if you didn't know that the Bowie knife was mentioned in that, then well, fair enough. It came out a few years after Davy Bowie had changed his name anyway. So maybe it was the other way around? Possibly. The A to Z of David Bowie. Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. C is for Lee Black Childers. Now, uh, to begin with, uh, if we are wrong in this, then we'll just say, OK, it's a fair cop gov. But I've always called him Lee Black Childers, but it might be Childers. It could easily be that. I have met him. I'll get into that a little bit later on. But born 1945 in Jefferson County, Kentucky, and started to spell his name with three rather than two E's as a child. So obviously, already, you know, going off page and going off piece, fair play to him, attended Kentucky Southern College near Louisville before moving to San Francisco in 1967. And his entry into photography 
photography came in San Francisco, where he sought out Timothy Leary after reading about him in an issue of Life magazine. A year later, he moved to New York City and he became known as a photographer, writer and band manager. Yeah, so his speciality as a photographer was taking pictures of drag queens and he was encouraged by Andy Warhol to work as a photographer in the first place and he got a reputation for his portrait work. And of course, everybody who passed through the factory in New York, Lee Blackchilders, was there to take pictures of them. In 71, he was also stage managing Warhol's production of Pork, which came to the Roundhouse in London. He was assistant to Warhol at the factory uh, in the early 80s as well, took loads of pictures of visiting celebrities. And by 2012, he'd published his own book, Drag Queens, Rent Boys, Pickpockets, Junkies, Rockstars and Punks, which is a collection of all his life's work. Yeah, and he actually passed away, didn't he, in uh, Los Angeles in uh, 2014 at Mm. the age of 68 from an undisclosed cause. Okay, so the Bowie connection comes in here. He works as a tour manager for Bowie. Bowie had seen the Roundhouse production of Pork on the advice of Angie. I think she'd made him go along to have a look. Thought it might be interesting, might be inspiring. And of course, it was this very decadent, salacious play with lots of naughty stuff in it, wasn't there? Yeah, well, absolutely. (laughs) Which is supposedly based on Andy Warhol's phone conversations, so he just translated it to a stage. Really? Yeah. Blimey, okay. So, uh, Childers and some of the pork actors and actresses went to see Bowie and Mick Ronson play at the Country Club in north-west London during that tour, and his interest had been piqued by seeing that famous photo of Bowie wearing a dress. And so he thought, let's invite this guy, I need to meet this guy, let's invite him to see pork himself, we haven't seen it already. Right, okay, and Bowie obviously liked him, so when his career took off, he employed members of the pork crowd as his management. Okay, so they worked for Main Man in short. So Childers became vice president, very grand title, of the New York offices of Main Man, and he was his own personal photographer as well, you know, for David Bowie. Uh, so uh, Bowie had visited New York in June 1972, where he reconnected with Childers, who, alongside Wayne County, who again these days is Jane County, mm. and I saw with Wayne County in the electric chairs playing at rafters in Manchester, they agreed to circulate copies of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars to various DJs and tastemakers. Uh, so, yeah, again, they're just all beavering away, all working for Bowie. Yeah. Yes, Childers was also there. He worked on the huge, massive world tour that Bowie undertook around this time. Went with him on that epic journey from Japan to Britain via Russia on the Trans-Siberian Express. He was with him all the way there, along with Jeff McCormack, of course. And Melody Maker reported in May 73 there had been a fallout between Bowie and main man New York after Childers abruptly left the tour. Lots of conjecture going on what really happened here. What really happened, actually, he'd been summoned back to LA to start looking after Iggy and the Stooges, which you probably wouldn't wish on your worst enemy at that time. Right. Okay, and uh, yeah, I mentioned it earlier, but whilst I was in the fall, it was 1981, and we played one of the uh, various different peppermint lounges that that ever existed. Uh, so the fall were playing there one night, but the the night before that, Johnny Thunders was playing. The night before that in New York, we'd actually seen Johnny Thunders in a burger bar. Really? Yeah, and he was sat with this woman who was wearing very very few clothes, and he had two black eyes. Did Johnny Thunders? Right. Uh, a tiny tiny little creature he was. Uh, I'm a huge fan. I mean, you know, just so we're all like, wow, that's Johnny Thunders, and he's playing the Peppermint Lounge tomorrow night, and we're playing it the following night. So we were buzzing from it, mm. and we went to see Johnny Thunders, and he was great. I mean, the story about Johnny Thunders that night, he came on not looking too well. He went straight over to his Fender Twin Amp, ran his hand across all of the dials, so everything was turned up to right. 10. He hit his guitar strings, of which two broke. And so he immediately went off again, you know? And uh, so he was just a, a really amazing start. And then, oops, yeah, off. 
back on again 10 minutes later having restrung the guitar uh, and a really great gig and then afterwards I was at the bar and somebody introduced me to this guy we got talking said alright so yeah I'm playing here tomorrow night my name's Mark Riley blah 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 who are you and he said uh, Lee, well, Lee Black Childers or Childers well. can't remember and, uh, and we had a, a long conversation and I did I, I quizzed him about Bowie and all kinds of things wow. but you know um, needless to say I'd had a few shandies drink responsibly can't remember well fair enough but you met the guy met him yeah the A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. C is for Keith Christmas. Born 3rd of October 1946 in Wivenhoe near Colchester in Essex. His first album came out in 1969 called Stimulus and through the 70s he released four more and he toured and supported with people like The Who, Captain Beefheart, King Crimson, Frank Zappa and The Kinks, which isn't bad. Right. Later on he formed the blues band called Weatherman in the early 90s uh, with some friends and an album the same name was released a year later. He's still recording and touring today. Okay, and so he, I think he'd been hanging around at the Arts Lab as well, hadn't he? Yeah, Christmas, and he just part of the part of the kind of folky scene that, that Bowie was involved in. Mm. Uh, but he played acoustic guitar on Space Oddity, the yes. album, didn't he? Yeah. And he appeared at the first Glastonbury Festival in 1970. And Keith Christmas said he recognised David Bowie as a fellow traveller in the hippie scene. So there you have it. He recognised there were groovy people, and he liked grooving, interesting people. He knew that most of the big talent was making acoustic music, so he wasn't slow to have a go. Right, he wasn't slow to have a go at anything, was he? No, not at Anthony Newley, mod, whatever. So as you say, he got a job on Space Oddity playing 12-string acoustic guitar. So he's on Letter to Hermione, God Knows I'm Good, Janine, Memory of a Free Festival and an Occasional Dream. So he's right there, along with all these other players like Herbie Flowers and Tim Rennick and Terry Cox and the rest. So you think it's all going to happen. And it was all about to because he was just about to release a stimulus album that you mentioned before that I have not heard or even heard of, but I will right. rectify that. I would imagine from what he said, it's a groovy hippie album. Absolutely. But he says I was convinced my album was going to be a huge success. Uh, but I didn't think David stood much of a chance. It seemed such a shame. I thought he was such a nice guy and deserved to be famous, just as much as me. Oh, I love that. That's so innocent, isn't it? It's great. <laughs> yeah, he said there. On the 16th of August, 1969, five days after Bowie's dad's funeral, uh, Keith Christmas was one of the players at the Beckenham Free Festival, along with Bridget St John, the Straubs, Lionel Bart, Comus, and the Gasworks, and loads of others. Yeah, now the Bowie connection was remade a bit later on. In April 74, Bowie was putting together a new band, and he briefly auditioned Keith Christmas as an electric guitar player. Yeah, I never knew this. Yeah, I didn't know until recently. So Christmas said later it was a height of his uh, cocaine use at the time. Sessions, for whatever reason, just didn't work out. It's rumoured that he played on some of the Diamond Dog sessions, but it's unclear what, you know, if anything, he's actually on. He's certainly not on the finished product, I don't think. Right, OK. I mean, there's a lot of that. I mean, you know, this talk about Alan Parker, we've mentioned before, you know, from Blue Mink. Yeah. So he plays on the album. Mm. Bowie is being credited as playing guitars on the album with Alan Parker just maybe on one song and it seems like lots of different people came in and did bits and bats whether it just didn't stand up uh, and, uh, and none of it was used but it seems that there's various people doing little bits and bats here and there dropping in on the studio yeah. as I suppose they would but picking the bones out of it is yeah. almost impossible really difficult even more impossible later on sometime in 75 when uh, Keith Christmas joined Bowie to make some demos in Los Angeles around the time of Station to Station this is where it does get very murky about who did what and who was in on sessions but there are kind of demos knocking about of tunes like Turn Blue and both guns are out there. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Diamond Dogs, Tony DeFries, Derek and Clive. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.